Our message series during October is called Asking for a Friend. It's when we are answering very difficult questions about God and about life and, and, and about our faith. They're your questions that you asked over the summer. And I received one question that I, I knew that we really had to answer right at the beginning of the service because it's such a good question. So many people throughout the, the years and the centuries have asked it. And I want to talk about this right away this morning. It's this question. Does Jesus ever get sick of hearing from me? Does Jesus ever get sick of hearing from me? And, and when I saw this question, I, I, I don't know if I'm reading into this, but I, I felt pain behind this question, frustration behind this question. And, and, and because so many people are probably asking this question, I want to talk about this in the beginning of our worship service today, because if this is on your mind, this question will prevent you from giving your full heart to God. So does God ever get sick of hearing from me? The short answer to that question is no, God does not ever get sick of hearing from his children. But it's a great question. 2,000 years ago in Judea, the Jewish people were asking that same question. They were frustrated. They didn't feel like they were hearing from God. And so they were wondering, is God just sick of hearing from us? And they asked Jesus, ironically, who was the answer to their prayers. They asked Jesus if God was sick of hearing from them. And Jesus responded with a, with a parable. He told this parable in Luke chapter 18 about a judge. So there was this earthly judge, and a parable is a made-up story, so Jesus is making up this story to illustrate a point. There's this corrupt judge, not a good person, and this woman is coming to this judge for mercy and for justice and for relief, and this judge is just denying this woman. Just get away. We don't want to see you. We don't want to talk to you. Go away, go away, go away. But eventually, that judge finally answers her request, not because he's a good person or interested in justice, but because he's sick of hearing from her. And Jesus' question is, is God that judge? And his answer is emphatically no. God is not that judge. Jesus tells that story in order to tell all of the Jewish people and us today that if there are corrupt earthly judges that grant justice, how much more will God grant justice to his children? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You are God's child. He will never grow weary of hearing from you. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good gifts to those who ask him? Not only does God not get sick of hearing from you, he wants to hear from you. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Rejoice always, pray continually. 
and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Prayer is your lifeline to God. Please pray. Please pray every day. Please pray about what it means to pray continually. Do not be afraid to make requests of God. Also, don't be afraid to thank God. Don't be afraid to praise God. Don't be afraid to ask God for direction. And don't forget to listen to God. And finally, it's not just what we think of as prayer is our lifeline to God. But our praise is us talking to God too. Do you think God ever gets tired of our praise? No, he does not, friend. As part of our message series, let's continue asking and at least attempting to answer some of the most difficult questions about our faith. Here's our next question. Does God ever change his mind? Does God ever change his mind? Have you ever wondered about that? Man, I I have. What does Scripture say about whether God changes His mind or not? Now, this relates directly to our last question on prayer. If we, God's children, are allowed to pray, and we are allowed to make requests of God, and through those requests to bring about something that may not have otherwise happened, it stands to reason that God does change His mind, right? It might even stand a reason that we may change God's mind through our prayers, right? What does God's Word have to say about that? Let's go right there to God's Word. The prophet Samuel, who lived around 1000 BC, once told King Saul this in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Likewise, a thousand years later, the author of the book of Hebrews writes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, these are just two scripture verses, but when I read all of the counsel of scripture, the entire Bible, I see a God that does not change. The entire council of Scripture presents a God that does not change. So what's up with prayer? Are we changing God's mind if we can make requests of God that will bring about something that otherwise wasn't going to happen? I don't see it like that. I don't think that means God changes his mind. God absolutely grants prayer requests to his children. But I don't think it's us changing God's mind. In fact, God will not, and this is an emphatic statement, God will not grant prayer requests that would change his mind. Does that make sense? And I can prove it to you. Jesus once healed a man born blind. And the man said this, about prayer in John chapter 9. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does His will. 
Now, what you see in front of you, Aiden, can you go back to that scripture? Let's just dwell on that for a second. Thank you. This is a low-key, very, very important verse. Are we in God's will? Are our prayers in God's will? Have we matched our mind to God's mind? Listen to this. This is just a little bit of logic. There are millions or most probably billions, billions of people every day who make prayer requests to God. Some of those people are in God's will. I would have to imagine that many people that throw up prayers to God don't know God. Can you imagine that? There are so many people that that cry out in desperation seeking prayer requests from God who aren't living in God's will, who have no idea what God's will is. And that means that some of those prayers are going to be sinful prayers. The prayer of the person that doesn't know God at all, that is just throwing up a, a literal Hail Mary to the magic genie in the sky... That prayer request may not be holy. That prayer request may be sinful. And God will not grant that prayer request because God will not change His mind. God will not change His mind. But I have a very serious question for you and for me. If God does not change His mind, do we change our mind? Are we willing to have our minds changed? Because listen to this. If it is our desire as Christians to conform to God's will, and that's what our desire is, to conform to God's will. If it is our great desire as Christians to know God better and to conform to God's will, and God's will is unchanging and God's mind is perfect, and we are sinful human beings, then whose mind has to change? Paul writes this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Aiden, hold on that verse. Please tattoo this on your heart. God doesn't change his mind. But as fallen, sinful human beings, we are called to let God change our mind to conform to His. Father God, would you please conform our minds to your will. Father God, help us to not pretend that we can change your mind on what you have said is truth. Help us conform to your will because we are your children. And we love you so much, Lord God. Amen. Next question. Next question. Why did God create earth and people? I have no idea why God created earth and people. (laughs) 
I turn on the news, I look outside my window, I look in the mirror, and I have no earthly idea why God chose to create us. Do you? Does anybody have an answer for that? Why would God create the headache? Oh my gosh. We, we have the account of the flood, right? And, and, and by the way, as regards, in, in regards to last question, I don't think the flood at all is uh, evidence that God changed his mind. I think the flood, I think the sending of Jesus Christ, which are related in incredible ways. I don't think those are evidence that God changes his mind. I think that is evidence that God loves us so much and hates sin so much that he is willing to react to things that we do and decisions that we make. But God at one point did decide to cleanse the world of sin by sending the flood, and then he promised to never do that again. And he he signed that promise in the form of the symbol of the, the rainbow. And I'm so glad that God decided not to ever flood the world again, because looking at humanity, I don't know how much has changed since the flood, right? I think we are kind of still the same sinful human beings that even existed before the flood. I imagine God looking down at what we're doing right now, and if he hadn't made that promise to never flood the world again, he would just say, flood, flood, flood. He would look at the American election cycle and say, big flood, right? Just everything, like swipe. Oh, no. There is one difference, though, and this is just off script a little bit. There's one difference between those brothers and sisters of ours that were living before the flood and now. What is that big difference? That's the big difference. There is a difference. Our human nature is no different. We're sons and daughters of God. That's the difference because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Let's get back on track. Why did God create earth and people? This is a very good thought as we continue in this series. We're attempting to answer some very, very difficult questions and we just can't know for sure why God did everything he did. The prophet Isaiah is speaking for God when he wrote, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We just can't answer many of these questions for sure. We can only look at God's word for evidence. And this question, why did God create? We, we have to attempt it. I love attempting to answer this question. It may be one of the greatest theological questions and and even one of the the greatest philosophical questions of all time. Why do we exist? Why did God create? Let's tackle something maybe a little bit easier to understand first. I know that God didn't create because he needed us. God did not create us because he needed us needed us. God doesn't need anything. Paul once told, the apostle Paul once told the people of Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need to live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath. And everything else. 
God didn't need me. God didn't need you. He didn't need the grieving that comes along with his creation. God didn't need the companionship. Now think about this. God has always been in relationship. God has always been in relationship. Now God existed from the very beginning, long before human beings, long before any carbon-based life forms, long before light and darkness and time existed. God existed, but God never existed alone. How can that be? We believe in a very important doctrine that we see at the very beginning of the Bible. Here's how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Not different, but differentiated. And then just a few verses later, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. And the ancient Hebrew makes it very clear that was very intentionally plural. Our one God, and God is one, our one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is called the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. We, we see this doctrine played out in Jesus' baptism in the book of Matthew, chapter 3. And we see the reality of the Trinity manifest itself right in the beginning of the Bible, right in the beginning of history and time. God's triune nature is how our one God has always been in relationship. Now, don't ask me to explain that. That's another question. But our God is a God of relationship. God loves happy, healthy, thriving, holy, edifying relationships. But God has always had that. So why did God create? Well, if we think logically again, if God didn't need us, there is only one other explanation. God wanted us. Which in my book is so much better. God didn't need you. God wants you. Do you understand that? Paul writes in Colossians, For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. For Him, you were created for God's pleasure. And please don't take that the wrong way. I don't mean to say that that you were created to entertain God. I don't think God finds a lot of what we do entertaining. But you 
were created for God's pleasure. God wants you, warts and all, sin and all. And I know God wants us because of what Jesus reveals in Luke chapter 15. Jesus says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the pasture and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? Or what woman who has lost 10 silver coins or who has 10 silver coins and loses one of them does not light a lamp, sweep her house and search carefully until she finds that lost coin. And later on, but while the disobedient son was still in the distance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. You know that you are the sheep. You know that you are the coin. You know that you are the child. God wants us. He didn't create us because he needed us. And truly, I think it even goes beyond God wants us. God is desperate for his children. And God is desperate for his children to come home. Do you know why I know that? If you're having a bad day, if you're feeling down, and if you go through seasons of feeling down, please remember that the creator of the universe loves you so very much. Dad, thanks for adopting us. And thanks for loving us, warts and all. Help us to remember that more often. And it's in your precious son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Final question for today. And it's a real big one. A lot of, a lot of stuff hangs on this question. How do we know it's all true? How do we know the Bible is true? By the way, this message series, I love this. This isn't just for us. The answers to these questions aren't just edifying for you, at least I hope not. I hope that these answers equip you with how you may respond to your unbelieving neighbors. Does that make sense? I guarantee your unbelieving neighbors don't believe Scripture is true. They don't believe this is true. So how do we know for sure it's true? Because a lot of people don't believe. A lot of people don't believe. Hey, by the way, let's just, let's just sort this out real quick. Let's just be very real and honest. If this isn't true, at the very least, we can all go home right now, right? And I've made a very silly career decision. It goes beyond that. If this isn't true, you can stop serving. You can stop loving your neighbor sacrificially. You can stop giving because none of that is human nature, if, if, if this is true, if this is, if this is not true, if this is made up, then we can stop following God's guidance in this book. We can start following again the law, not of God, but of nature. And the law of nature is natural selection. Survival of the fittest is the law that we can start following against this. Look out for number one. That's the law we can start following. If this isn't true, if this isn't true, there is not a God that exists who loves us. Oh, I hope this is true. 
I hope this is historical fact. And I hope this is true. If you're new with us at Charter Oak Church or if you have never seen it, I want to tell you exactly what our church family believes about Scripture and scriptural authority. This is right from our website. You can find this and all of our essential beliefs on our website. The Bible is God's word to us. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. Because it was inspired by God and is inspired by God, it is the truth without error. So how has our church family come to this conclusion? This statement specifically was formulated by two men who were authors of the New Testament, Peter and Paul. Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. He was Jesus' right-hand disciple, let's say. Peter writes this about Scripture. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And then we turn to something that Paul said. Paul was one of Christianity's first and most prominent missionaries. And he wrote this to his protege, Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now that's what the Bible says about scriptural authority. But if you're a skeptic of our faith, this is insufficient. And I get that because you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible, right? That's scientific method. You just can't do that. By the way, if you're a skeptic of our faith and you're here today, if you're a skeptic of our faith and you are watching online, I am so glad you are with us. You are welcome in this place. This is a safe space for you. And if you are a skeptic, you're thinking that this is completely insufficient because, again, you can't use Scripture to prove Scripture. Well, let's talk about what Scripture is. What is this book? Because the form that it comes to us in, in, the form that it comes to us in today is relatively misleading. There are a lot of world religions out there that are based on one person and one person's writing. So one person's writing is the foundation for several world religions. That's not what this is. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is 66 books. 66 different manuscripts written over the time span of about a thousand years by dozens of different authors over three different continents. And the most incredible thing about all that is that it all tells the same story. It all tells the same story about a God who has not changed one iota from Genesis to Revelation. And just that knowledge, the diversity of thought and opinion and time, that all coalesces in one narrative, that to me by itself is pretty good evidence that it may really be true. Here's where the skepticism comes from, and I completely get it. Even though historically, this super holds up. 
Scripture is more historically accurate than many of the things we study in our history classes based on the evidence and the corroborating manuscripts. So why don't we take this as historical fact like we believe in the Battle of Hastings or Genghis Khan or anything that we read about in history? Why don't we hold this up as historic fact? You know why? It's not a mystery. It's the mysteries. It's the, it's, it's the supernatural things that this book describes. I'm sorry, those 66 manuscripts. It's the supernatural circumstances that make it hard to believe, and I get it. Miracles don't really exist, do they? That means it has to be made up. It has to be not true, right? Forget about the little miracles. Forget about the, the healings. How about the grand miracle? That's... I think what causes a lot of people to stop. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates that don't believe, look at the cross and say, that can't be true. So none of it's true. Are you telling me that God, one, exists, two, came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago to die on the cross as the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins, walked out of the tomb three days later to prove it was all true, and because he did that, we get to spend, paradise, we get to spend eternity in paradise? Is that what you're saying? I don't believe that. So it's the cross that makes people not even explore the validity and historicity of Scripture. But it's also the cross itself that is the greatest evidence for its truth. It all hinges on Jesus Christ. If Jesus is who he said he was, then it's all true. But is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is Jesus true? Did this really happen? Let's go back 2,000 years. The Roman Empire was the greatest world power, certainly 2,000 years ago, and one of the biggest and most influential world powers that have ever existed. They had unlimited resources. When Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb and when all of these people started believing it and they saw it with their own eyes and this new religion spread like wildfire, Rome, the most powerful and influential organization on the planet, had a very vested interest in this not being true. Rome was very cool with any religion that was polytheistic, that believed in many gods. As long as you believed that Caesar was also God, you could exist however you wanted to. You could keep your religion. In fact, they encouraged you to keep your religion. This religion was different because there was only one God and Caesar was not it. And so they had to, and this thing was spreading like wildfire, and they had to suppress it by any means necessary. They couldn't let this thing get out of hand, and it was very quickly getting out of hand. So Rome used its unlimited resources to suppress. Rome used its unlimited resources to find a body 
the body of Jesus Christ. Did they ever find that body? They did not. They did not. After they couldn't find the body of Jesus Christ, after they could not refute the eyewitness, the eyewitness accounts that Jesus walked out of the grave, they tried to suppress in other ways. They jailed and they tortured and they killed. They jailed and they tortured and they killed. And men and women went to their death, all claiming it was true. In fact, Paul wrote, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That doesn't sound like somebody who is perpetuating a lie or something that was made up. Jesus Christ believed that the entire Old Testament was true. The people that lived during Jesus' time believed that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. They saw the death and resurrection with their own eyes. Countless martyrs from Stephen to modern day martyrs that are being jailed and tortured and killed, literally as we speak for our faith, they all believe it's true. They all believe it's true. Now, we come to you and I. None of that may be sufficient to convince you that this is true. None of that may be sufficient. None of, none of that historicity may be sufficient to convince you if you didn't walk in here today a believer that Jesus Christ died and walked out of the grave 2,000 years ago. At the end of the day, you have to decide if it's true. Because many of those people who saw Jesus alive and well chose not to believe. And so you have to look at the evidence. You have to witness the resurrected Jesus Christ and you have to decide for yourself whether it's true or not through faith. And that's how we believe, not by convincing, not by looking at even the history of evidence that we have. But you and I need to believe through faith. Paul writes again in Ephesians, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Or by the way, any other human being, it is from God. Whether this is true or not is a decision that you have to make for yourself. Let's pray. Lord God, you exist. You are our God and we are your people. And we love you and we praise you and we worship you, Father God, for anybody here today who is not yet a believer, they are so loved. Lord God, nothing we say, nothing I say, nothing their friends say will convince unbelievers of the cross it doesn't make sense there's no valid argument Holy Spirit would you open our hearts and our minds right now to be transformed 
that what we see with our eyes may not be the entire picture. Father God, all this we pray in your precious Son, Jesus' name. Amen.